Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. If you haven't RSVP'd for our 10-year anniversary celebration, I really don't know what you're waiting for. It's going to be great, and registration closes on July 12th, so you should get cracking on that. This week, we're actually getting ready for that celebration by bringing you a message from before the beginning of Grace Downtown. What does that mean, you must be wondering? Well, before Grace Downtown actually had its first worship service, there were months of preview meetings. Today, we're bringing you the earliest, oldest, longest-to-go recording we have in our archives. It's the teaching Pastor Glenn gave at one of those preview meetings. It's not the talk he gave at the very first preview meeting. Sadly, that one seems to have been lost to history. But it's pretty darn close. If this look back into the earliest days of Grace Downtown is at all interesting or exciting to you, then go to gracedc.net slash downtown to sign up for our 10-year anniversary dinner. Again, registration closes on July 12th, so you're running out of time. Now, here's Glenn. Um, if I haven't had a chance to say it yet, welcome to Grace DC and our preview meeting for this week. And... As you know, part of what we're doing here is thinking through core values. What would it mean to be this kind of church in this city? And those two things are very important. We're not trying to be this kind of church in another city or a stock city or the idea that we can just take a model from a gospel church in a city and place it here because this is a distinct city, a city with, with its own personality. I forgot to dismiss the kids. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um... And the second part is, uh, but we do want to think through how would the church take shape in Washington, D.C.? So that's what we're trying to do. And uh, we're doing that by way of looking at these core values. If you turn again to your bulletin uh, in the inside of it, you'll see the first, uh, second core value mentioned. This is our second week considering it. And that core value being that Jesus Christ and his gospel are utterly unique and central to all of life and been trying to make the case specifically as we've looked at how Jesus is a perfect model of a prophet, of a priest, and a king. Those were offices that were in the Old Testament, but really analogous to what we see in the world, right? All of us could probably name a prophet, a priest, and a king. And in fact, I don't want to extend those um, definitions too broadly, but in some sense, all of us function in those capacities as prophet, priest, and king. You function as a prophet. You instruct people. You teach people. You make moral pronouncements. You do priestly things. You mediate. Maybe you heal. You offer things to God. You do kingly things. You manage. You rule. You have judgments that you make. In fact, if you look at the first covenant that God established with the first human beings, those sort of elements were present in it, the relationship. So one way we can begin to think about the uniqueness of Jesus is simply measure our performance in those offices against his, if he's a perfect model. We tend to be prophets that declare a message or a gospel of self-achievement. Jesus declared a gospel of grace. We tend to be priests who offer things to God almost like bribes to put them in our debt so we can get them to do the things we want. And it frustrates us when he doesn't. Jesus offered things to God out of pure love, unconditionally. And we tend to be kings. We rule and manage to our benefit, sometimes unjustly, sometimes harshly with people. 
Jesus, instead, was the king that came in righteousness and peace. And all of us, in our heart of hearts, hunger for that sort of leader. I was reading the Post this week, and as they're covering the slate of new candidates and interviewing supporters, and you can hear the hope in people's voices. Well, my candidate, I really feel like he cares about me. Really feel like he wants to empower. And really, those are just the echoes throughout history of people longing for a righteous king, longing for that leader that really permeates every story that we have in life. Where is that leader going to come from? Whether it be Shakespeare's Henry V, whether it be Joan of Arc, whether it be Aragorn of Fellowship of the Ring, whether it be Aaron Brockovich, we all want a lawyer. Lawyer? Did I say a lawyer? Sorry. We all want a leader. Some of us need lawyers, too. All the lawyers are going, yes! Enough of these lawyer jokes. We all want a lawyer. Um, and we get glimpses of these people. You know, we get glimpses of these kinds of leaders. But typically, we find the opposite. We find leaders that uh, take their utopian views of the world, which end in genocide, what we find is leaders who inflate themselves. We find leaders who take their authority and instead of serving, they manipulate. So our hearts are broken many times as we think about where is this great leader that I hunger for in my heart? Here's the point. If your hope, if your ultimate hope for that great leader, that righteous king is bound to a human, you will be resigned to a life of naivety or cynicism. I'll say that again. If your ultimate hope for that righteous king is bound to a human being, you will be resigned to a life of naivety or cynicism. And my point here isn't to join in with the cynicism and say leaders always fail, therefore, let's just abandon the idea. God instituted leaders. It's a noble thing. And my point here isn't to recommend some coping mechanism in the form of a heavenly escape so that we can deal with our disappointment. And it's certainly not to give you some veiled political commentary. I promise you it's not that. But rather, it's to urge you that you would take your rightful desire for a leader, your rightful desire for a righteous king, and put it in the right place, where God meant it to be, on him. And his son, Jesus Christ, who invaded space and time 2,000 years ago in his unique person. So that's what I want to think about tonight as we look at Jesus' quote-unquote triumphant entry into Jerusalem the last week of his life, where he dons himself as a king. Let's read the passage here, and we'll uh, think a little bit about the second core value. I'm reading out of Luke 19, the English Standard Version. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at Mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their colts, cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice. 
for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Jesus, this uh, is a perplexing passage in the Bible. We pray that you would do the work of a prophet in our midst and you'd be gracious to us and you would help us to understand what it is you have for us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It begins in verse, verse 28 by saying, and when he had said these things, and these things were a parable that you don't have listed before you, unless you brought a Bible. Jesus had just told a parable about a noble man, a noble man that had been called to a distant country to be appointed king and then return. And right before he takes this journey, he takes sent 10 of his servants and leaves them some money and says, get busy while I'm gone, be profitable. And then he leaves for the country. In the meantime, a group of citizens that hated him send a delegation on to say, we don't want this man ruling over us as king, but he's appointed anyway. When he returns, he commends the servants that were faithful by putting them in charge of cities, and then he brings his enemies before him and has them slaughtered. And by this, Jesus is teaching those that are ambivalent toward him being king or opposed to him being king will face great loss in the end. So you would suspect after this parable that Jesus would mount a steed in a chariot and, a chariot and cry, victory, and ride into the city. But instead, he borrows a donkey, rides into Jerusalem, and he weeps. You have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Excuse me. This sign of king, strange way he acts. For so much of Jesus' ministry, he downplayed his kingship. When his disciples would try to elevate him, he would suppress their desire to do that. And now, in public fashion, he gives them their great wish. You see this in verse 35. They actually can lift him up and set him on the donkey, on the colt. And they spread their cloaks and branches before him, which was an appropriate response for royalty. And they begin to cry out and invoke these Old Testament scriptures, Zechariah and Psalm 118, which was used for kingly occasions. And they offer these titles... Blessed King, the other Gospels record, King of Israel, David, King of David, Son of David, crying out these titles. And Jesus doesn't object, and he receives them this time. And the Pharisees see that he receives them, and they come up amidst the crowd. In verse 39, the religious leaders of the day, and they're appalled. And over the shouting, they say, rebuke them. Do not let them attribute that sort of glory to you. Stop that. And Jesus says, if they're forced to be silent, these rocks will cry out. And my suspicion is, if the Pharisees hadn't been afraid of the crowds, they would have killed him on the spot, because they knew what he was referencing. He was referencing those psalms that say that the Creator is so glorious, it's as if inanimate objects have to cry out. Trees clap their hands, rocks 
cry out. Hills clap their hands. And Jesus is saying, this is about me. It's a startling thing he does there. Here the king is unveiling himself. And the Pharisees know it. The people that understood the Bible knew it. And they were incensed and eventually killed him. Now, although the praise is offered with mixed motives, you see this in verse 37, they're praising God mostly for his mighty acts. John's gospel tells us that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So there were folks there that were just intrigued about that. That's why they showed up. But there's still something authentic that God intended. God has a wonderful, wonderful way of superimposing over situations. And in this moment, he wanted his son who laid aside his glory from heaven to have a foretaste of that glory. So even through the mixed praise, Jesus is being revealed as king here. And after all, when you're in the presence of greatness, it's very hard to contain it. Someone just came in, uh, a Red Sox fan, uh, because I spent some time in New England, and said, did you hear about the game? And I was reflecting this week on when the New England Patriots won the Super Bowl just a couple weeks ago. And... uh, couple years ago. (laughs) And they needed a lawyer, too. Uh, Pray for me up here, huh? Uh, Anyway, they won the Super Bowl. And I don't know if you were familiar with their journey, but it was really something. They were the underdogs. Their ascent was was really, uh, you know, breathtaking in many ways. And it came to this playoff game in the snow, and their field goal kicker kicks this amazing field goal, and the place just erupted. And a friend of mine was reading the sports page that next day, and uh, the Globe actually reported an account, or rather an article was an account from a fan there. And he said, it was the most incredible moment of my life when that field goal was kicked. The place just erupted. We all fell forward. When I finally got up, a guy from seven rows above me was on top of me. Everybody just rolled forward. You know, you just sense this great joy. They couldn't contain themselves. And one of the ways you can tell you're coming to know God is you start to have moments like that, where you have trouble containing it. And you find that those moments are most clearly apprehended with Jesus Christ. You know, the picture in the Bible, when you look at the book of Revelation that talks a lot about heaven, You see this picture of God and everybody around the throne, and they're falling on their faces, and they're saying, glory, glory, glory. Hallelujah, hallelujah to the Lamb. And they're getting back up, and they're falling back down. And you could see that and think, well, it's almost as if they're programmed to say those things. But that's not the case. And they're not saying those things because angels are holding up cue cards cards to say them. Why are they saying those things? Because they can't contain it, because they're in the presence of glory. Now, some of you have never had those moments, and I want to urge you the place to begin would be with Jesus and to continue to come to these meetings, that if we lift Jesus up, maybe you would have some of those moments where you couldn't contain yourself. And I don't know what your perception about God is. Maybe it's been mostly he's just distant. Maybe he's not very compelling. Maybe he's confusing. But one of the ways you can see that you're coming to know him, and it makes sense, he's God, right? He should evoke some emotion in us. And then those of us here have had it off and on, but we lose it, don't we? (laughs) We've had those moments, but they flee away. And I want to suggest to you, it's probably because somewhere along the way, you've lost your picture of Jesus. How Jesus-centered is your faith? Because he's the clearest apprehension of that glory. So, the king of kings comes near, and he allows you to come near to him and lift him up, and it's really an amazing thing.
And that's what he does for these guys. So, he, he manifests his kingship in sort of an unprecedented way, but it's not a completely unfamiliar way. If anybody was paying attention, they would see. His birth announcements, there were reports that angels were appearing in the sky, saying that this is the Son of God. When Jesus began preaching early sermons, he said, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And he exerted power over nature. He exerted power over illness. He exerted power over evil. He's doing kingly things. But still, there's something unique about this moment, and I think something for us to learn about his kingship here. And let's return to the crowds, because it's easy to be shouting out praises and really not know why you're doing it. Let me read this excerpt. This was written, this is a a non-biblical source about 180 years before this event occurred in the Bible. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. Undergird him with the strength to destroy the unrighteous rulers, to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles who trample her to destruction. And there you can get a bit of the mindset of the crowd. The long await of Messiah was here. And they understood that when the Messiah came, there would be comprehensive change. They get an A for that. That when the Messiah showed up, there would be political ramifications. There would be social ramifications. They understood that. But they never dreamed that when the Messiah came, it would actually require spiritual change on their part. And you notice, where where does Jesus head when he comes into Jerusalem? It's not the palace, it's the temple, the first place he goes. It's not the political center, it's the spiritual center. It's not Rome where he heads, he heads right towards his people. When the kingdom comes, that's where he goes first. And they miss it. Now I think there's something for us to see here, and that is, as sinful people, we always think our biggest problems are out there. You know, it's that roommate, it's that employer. It's that liberal. It's that conservative. These Romans, we always think our problem is out there. That's our tendency. And we'd rather rather start a thousand different places than our hearts. It's convenient for us. And if you've heard me saying before that we intend to be an outward-facing church here, what I don't mean by that is saying a church that gathers together goes, the problem's out there. We're an outward-facing church. There's the problem. That's not what I mean. That's not what the Bible talks about. And you can always tell when a church is done that, when it becomes an issue-driven church. And the biggest thing tends to be what the next great battle in the culture war is. That's when you can begin to see that the problem is always out there and doesn't start here with our own hearts. And I'm not suggesting disengagement from the culture. One of our core values is renewal, going out into the culture. I'm suggesting there may be a different starting point than what we're used to. And the fact that Jesus settles for nothing less than our hearts is really wonderful news. Because we have people that deal with us all the time, and they're, they're glad to have minimal, minimal involvement with our hearts, right? They're glad to just basically uh, deal with us a little bit, but not too much. They're glad to use us. They're glad for us to serve simply as a tool. Jesus is not like that. He is not content unless he gets at your heart. And when Jesus heads for the heart of Jerusalem, he literally is heading for the heart of Jerusalem, the hearts of these people here. The Bible pursues God as the great lover that pursues his people. And I don't know if you've had occasion to read some of these verses in the Bible, but they'll almost make you blush at times, the way God talks about his people. 
you know, my treasured possession, I will sing love songs over you. You know, he, he refers to his people as a, as a bride, and when they fail as an adulteress, he takes it personally. Why? Because he's after the heart. God is always after the heart first. And Jesus is doing that very thing. And it's very easy for the people to say, no, good, the Messiah's come, the problem's out there. And he's going, no, the problem's in here. And he heads straight to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had been on Jesus' mind for a long time. He knew it was his place of destiny. If you look at verses 28 through 29, when Luke is mentioning these cities, Bethphage and Bethany and Mount Olives, it's almost like markers on a map when there's a battle happening and you see these dotted lines through the significant cities. Their significance is the relationship to Jerusalem. That's why Luke is bringing them up. And he's saying, he's getting closer. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. Jesus is moving toward his destiny. And you have to ask why. Why is Jerusalem so important? Well, it was the holy city, but that's not why it's so important. It's so important because it was supposed to be a model of the heavenly city. And the temple itself was supposed to be the symbolic center of that city. And what happened to the temple was supposed to be a revelation of God's grace. How could you begin to understand God's character? Well, there was this ongoing demonstration at the temple. Want to see what God's like? Go down to the local temple. You'll see it put before you, the offerings, the sacrifices, the word of God is being read. But instead of being a view of God's salvation, it became a platform for a competing view of God's salvation. The temple was supposed to be a window into God's grace. But you know what it's like. Sometimes you're passing by a window, and you're looking, at, you're looking outside, and all of a sudden you catch a reflection of yourself, and you become more preoccupied with a reflection of yourself. You stop looking outside. And that's what they did. They saw themselves performing these duties with regard to the temple. It was really uh, indicative of their entire spiritual lives. And they began to see themselves and go, well, God must be impressed with this. And these people must be impressed with this. And the result was they lost the window. And they missed why Jesus was coming. And here's the thing. Once you become committed to an image of yourself, once you're... um, how do I say it? Once your confidence and peace before God and other people is staked on an image that you've created of yourself, an image where you have to be righteous and together, you will kill or be killed to maintain that image. And that's what they did. Once you get a taste of that, it's like a drug. And you get in this vicious cycle where you can't let it go. You'll kill or be killed. I think a wonderful example of this, and some of you have heard me mention this briefly, is Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, and uh, actually popularized in the musical as well, I think is helpful. And uh, you have two main characters, Jean Valjean, who is the ex-con, and Javert, the police officer that pursues him all his life. And they're really symbolic of grace, a life of grace, and a life of law and righteousness. And many of you I know know the story. Jean Valjean gets imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread. He then tries to escape gets thrown back in prison, and yes, his sentence was unjust, but he emerges from prison a very embittered person until a priest meets him with some kindness and mercy, and he has, in a sense, a conversion experience, and he understands grace in a way that he never knew, and he begins to live out of grace. Javert, on the other hand, is someone that's consumed with the letter of the law and with righteousness, and in the musical, there's a wonderful song Javert sings, Stars, and you can hear it in there. The stars are the sentinel. And he talks about the law and the glory of the law. But to talk about the glory of the law without grace is a very dangerous thing. 
And he goes to the law really to erase his past in many ways because he himself was born in the gutter by a prostitute. It's a way he can self-purify himself, which I think is incredibly insightful why we often go to the law of God to purify ourselves. Anyway, at the very end, the tables get turned. Javert gets captured by the French resistance, or rather the French Revolution involved in it, and basically, uh, by a stroke of providence, he's handed back into the hands of Jean Valjean, who is supposed to execute him. Instead, he lets him go free, and many of you know what happens after that. What does Javert do? He kills himself because he would rather die than receive grace. He had staked his life on his own righteousness, and he cannot give it up. And this may sound like a bit of a far-flung story until you read last year that a renowned French chef, upon hearing that his restaurant ratings had dropped one point, killed himself. I don't know if you read that story. We lust for approval. The way that we conduct our lives, the way we react in either pride or embarrassment regarding our job and its relative importance in this city, when someone says, what do you do? The way we kick into our defense mode, defending our righteousness when someone raises just the smallest flaw about our character. The way we oppose grace and the way we vie for righteousness. It's enough to make you weep. And that's what Jesus does here. He weeps. That's why he's weeping. Because the very people he has a heart for oppose him and oppose his grace. It says in verse 41 that he looks down at Jerusalem and he cries. And you see this picture. Mount Olives is looking down. And while everybody's rejoicing and doing backflips, Jesus is sitting there just weeping and crying. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, if you, even you knew what I came to bring, but you missed it. And then he begins to weep about the destruction that would occur 40 years later in A.D. 70 when Rome Rome would demolish the temple and demolish Jerusalem. And that's what occurred. But it's a harbinger as well for those that oppose grace. Now, what does this have to do with the new church? Well, if Jesus will be the king of this church, that means this church will have to learn to weep when grace is opposed. First and foremost, when it's opposed in the church. When the main message of the church becomes, the problem's out there, we need to begin to weep. When the church, refusing the free peace of the gospel herself, only has judgment to bring to the world, we, learn, we need to weep. The law, in and of itself, alone, has no power to change anybody. The grace of the gospel, the grace of Jesus, is what changes people. So we need to begin to weep. We need to begin to weep over the people, ourselves, the people in our lives, our colleagues, our friends, our family members, who would rather die than receive grace, who would rather go to the grave clinging to their own righteousness. And we need to weep for the oppressed, because when grace is opposed, those are the first people that get hit hard. Because when grace doesn't exist in a city, the poor and downtrodden never receive it. We need to learn to weep in this church when we see that happening. But the main reason Jesus is weeping has to do with the peace that he brought. And Jerusalem missed what he came to bring. When we talk about peace, the idea isn't simply uh, existential peace or some inner peace. Shalom. The idea is of a comprehensive peace that affects every area of life. And this is what Jesus comes to bring. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this when you look at the passage here, but uh, there seems to be an inordinate amount of space given to a donkey, right? I mean, you think about it. A lot of verses given to a donkey. All the trouble Jesus went to get a donkey. The fact that he rode a donkey. 
And uh, I had a professor that used to love to say, you can tell a lot about people by what they drive. And uh, it's hard to ride on a donkey proud, isn't it? You're slouched over, your feet are hanging to the ground. The only way to ride a donkey is to be humble. And there was something else in the ancient world coming on a donkey meant. When you, were, when you were coming on a donkey, it meant that you were coming in peace. And here's the king making this verbal proclamation. The great king for whom creation can't contain itself, the great king that really has the right to judge those who oppose his grace, making this great proclamation, visual proclamation, I come on a donkey. I come in peace to you. That's why he goes to all the trouble to do it. And it's really a a stunning view of God's grace at this moment. As Jesus really, he moves into the battlefield unarmed. What king would ever do that? What king do you know who would ever go into the fray, the worst battle, with nothing, disarmed? And this is what Jesus does. Now, Paul wrote a verse in Colossians that I want to read to you because I think it really summarizes in some ways this I don't know if it's a paradox. We can't get our minds around it. Listen to this. He's describing Jesus. He is the firstborn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Then listen to this, the last line. Making peace by the blood of the cross. Doesn't make sense, does it? He goes through this incredible list of the glory of Jesus, the fullness of God. Here he is, the firstborn over all creation. And the last line, making peace with the blood of his cross. And all of a sudden you see that this great king will bring peace. He will extend peace by riding through Jerusalem and entering, uh, offering his life as an atonement for sin. And this great king, instead of occupying the throne, will occupy a cross, and instead of getting a crown of thorns, he'll take a crown of thorns. A crown of gold, rather. He'll take a crown of thorns. This is what this king will deal. This is what he'll do. You know, occasionally you hear on someone's deathbed, uh, they say, well, you better go make your peace with God. We don't make peace with God. God makes peace with us, okay? We don't reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciles us to him. It's his initiative. It's his grace. Jesus is the one that comes in peace. He's not greeted in peace. He comes in peace. And uh, I just want to say something to you personally. Um, For those of you, well, we we can extend this uh, across, uh, across the gamut, really. If your life is, is trying, is about trying to make peace with God, you will never get there, okay? Your one qualification for peace is that you need it. That's the good news. And the king is coming in peace. See, for you to have peace, you need to have something outside of yourself that can ground you, right? How can you foster peace within yourself? And that's what God does through his son. There's something outside of you whereby you can begin to have peace. Many times people within the church find their peace in lots of different ways. We've talked about this last week. You know, my peace is relative to how well I did this week with some habitual sin. Or my peace is relative to to how well I'm progressing in my spiritual life. And I'm not saying there's some encouragement and affirmation that God gives. But if your peace is grounding on that, I promise you, you'll never have it. 
Peace is not generated by you. You didn't die. You're not the king. You didn't shed your blood on a cross. Isn't that good news? <laughs> Jesus did that. This is the king. He extends the peace to you. And it's really just so different than what we see around us. That's part of the problem why we struggle. Where do you see that sort of activity? You look at world history and you find kings instead doing everything they can to maintain their own peace, not extending peace. It's very hard, and it's not the way we operate. And I want to end by just applying this one more time to our church and thinking about this. And that's uh, this. Oftentimes churches seek to change the culture by mounting a war horse instead of a donkey. And if we're going to have any effect in any ministry in the city, it's going to be because, because we mount a donkey just like Jesus. Now, uh, typically the idea is uh, Christians try to marshal their forces and will beat people at their own game. Jesus had that option, and he didn't take it. Do you remember the conversation with the governor, Pilate, where Pilate was putting him on trial and, and uh, interviewing him? Jesus said, don't you know... If I wanted to call down a legion of angels, I would do that. Jesus had the opportunity to outgun his opponent. He didn't do it. And the church is called to follow suit. It's possible to get people to conform, but be million, a million miles away from ever changing them, isn't it? It doesn't deal with the heart. I see that as a parent all the time. I'm called to discipline my child, okay? I have this situation where I have to. And I may succeed in restraining them, but I can tell I haven't won their heart over. And that's the battle. That is everything. Have I won their hearts over? And this is the job of the church. The church's job is not to reform hearts. It's to transform hearts through Christ. The job of the church is not to restrain the culture. It's to redeem the culture. Restraining the culture is an admirable thing. That's the point of the government. That's why God instituted the government. They restrain the culture. The church, their primary business isn't that. And oftentimes, from the message you would hear, that's what you would get. Why is the community of believers present? Well, we're going to hold back the culture. That's not it. Jesus came bringing peace to the gospel. So what does that mean? It means as we begin to extend shalom in D.C., Everything has to do with our attachment to the cross because the kind of redemption that Jesus brought flowed from that. He came in peace and he came through a cross and that's where the power of the church comes from. That's where it's drawn from. Paul made the statement, uh, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And when Paul said that, he wasn't saying, I don't have anything else to say. What he was saying is, everything I say as a minister of the church and a leader in the church is attached to the gospel. Anytime I, I begin to think about change, I begin to think about ministry, I'm consumed with this idea of Christ and Christ crucified because that's where the power comes from. There won't be any power to change this city if we just bear the law down in the city. I want to say it again. The law has no power to change. The law is a wonderful thing. Teach you the way of love. It has no power to change. And if the church is only bringing the law down on the city, what do you expect? But when you begin to come in peace as someone who's weak that needs the gospel, the power of the gospel begins to flow. And there begins to be remarkable force that's exhibited in the city. Force that comes from, from the gospel. Force that comes from the grace of God. So, if Grace DC can live up to its name, uh, we might see some remarkable things. And the good news is, Jesus finished his course. 
Okay? There's an ending to the story that you've been hungering for since you've been two. God didn't leave you high and dry. The king has come. He finished his course. He took an unexpected course. And he's reigning now. And he is free to dispense peace as he pleases. And he will do so. We're not existing in this church simply because a bunch of people got together and said, hey, let's form a church. There's nothing better to do. Glenn needs a job. And, uh, you know, I'm sure if we get enough clever, gifted people together, something will happen. The whole idea was that Jesus is reigning and is pleased to extend peace to this city. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has a heart for Washington, D.C.? And plans to do it through the cross. So, I hope as we worship together, our primary worship and excitement won't be uh, the church has won the latest cultural battle. I don't want to say that's not important, but rather it'll be attached to the cross in Christ. Let's pray together. We thank you for being uh, a king that confounds us, Jesus. You come in peace when we'd expect you to come after us. Uh, with wrath and judgment. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your commitment to this city. Thank you for the people that have come here. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.